begin this morning asking this question. How does the return of Jesus Christ affect the way that you live? If we removed all of the teaching about the return of Jesus Christ, which the Bible clearly teaches, if we removed all of that teaching from the Bible, all of that teaching even from the pulpit, I wonder would our lives change at all? It's an interesting question, and others have asked it about all sorts of things. Just imagine asking yourself the type of question. If we removed all the teaching about, let's just say, Christ's death and Christ's resurrection, how would that affect your lives? Hopefully you're thinking, well, gosh, you know what? Then there wouldn't be, and then you could fill in the blank. And we couldn't do this. There's no way we could do that. But how do we ask the question in relation to the return of Jesus Christ? Though the Bible as a whole speaks to how Christ's return should affect the way we live in, in its different facets, our passage today tells us that the sure return of Christ should motivate us to walk like him while we wait for him. That's sort of the big idea if you're taking notes today. The sure return of Christ should motivate us to walk like him while we wait for him. And our passage today can be found in Romans chapter 13. We are in verses 8 to 14. If you're using one of those black Bibles right there in front of you, you can be found on page 948. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. The letter to the Romans was written by a man named Paul, and he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, charged to lay the foundation of the church through the preaching of the gospel. And this letter can basically be broken up into two different parts. Hopefully, I basically say this every week, so hopefully you know it. Uh, Part number one is chapters 1 to 11. And there Paul explains what the gospel is. Like, why exactly is the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ? Why is Christ's life, his death on the cross for sins, and his resurrection truly good news to the problem of man? And actually, if you're there in Romans, the main verses that kind of summarize the whole entire letter, but especially... 1 to chapters 1 to 11 is right there in 1, 16 and 17. Go ahead and look there. These are kind of like the theme verses for the whole book as well as the first part. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he just goes on to explain what the gospel is. The second half is basically in chapters 12 all the way to the end. Go ahead and turn to chapter 12. And you see there, we got the theme verses for for this section too. This section just is like the natural implications or some of the implications that flow from the gospel. And he says there in 12.1, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So today we basically look at what it looks like, at least we double-click on some aspects of this, what it looks like to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and pleasing to Him, discerning the will of God, the good things, acceptable, the perfect things, in relation to love and holiness. Love and holiness. So let me repeat the main idea again, right? The sure return of Christ motivates us to walk like him 
as we wait for him, look there at verse 8 of chapter 13. I'll go ahead and read our section right now. Paul says there in 13.8, he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You hear there in those two paragraphs here in our English versions here, you have these aspects of Christian love and Christian holiness. But really, you know, when it comes to the return of Christ, which it speaks about here, salvation drawing nearer and nearer, When it comes to the return of Christ, the return of Christ should motivate all of our Christian lives. Remember, this ties all the way back to Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then everything in between, which speaks about any number of facets regarding the Christian life, particularly our life in community here. So really, the return of Jesus Christ, again, salvation drawing nearer and nearer, is to inform how we live our lives in such a way that our lives are pleasing to Him and holy to Him, such that when He comes... He will find us just walking like him, being about the kingdom, being about the things of the king and the things not of the world. Let's think first about the sure return of Jesus Christ. This is point number one, the sure return of Jesus Christ. Again, this idea of salvation drawing nearer and nearer. Now, now, this idea of like a final salvation might actually sound a bit weird. You know, we might think like, uh, weren't we saved when we believed on Jesus Christ right through the work of Jesus and his death on the cross, which is past? To that, you know, we'd say, absolutely, we have been saved if you are a Christian. Romans 5, chapter 9 says, Paul, Paul says there that all those who repent of their sin, that is, turn from their sin and believe on Christ by faith, they have been justified or past tense justified. So your salvation, if you're a Christian here, is finished. It's done in a very distinct way when we think about being declared righteous before God through Jesus Christ's blood. Romans chapter 6 says that Christians have already been freed from the tyranny and the power of sin. Romans chapter 8 says that we, are, as Christians, are now the children of God. But there is a sense, even though we have already been saved, there is a sense in which we are being saved. There is a, there is a sense, too, that we will be saved. Now, let me be clear here. This does not mean at all that we are being justified. If you've been with us through the book of Romans, you know what justification means. It means to be declared righteous before God, which happens through the work of Jesus Christ and the faith that God gives us through those things. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we are justified, right, once and for all. But there is a sense in the Bible that speaks about a present, ongoing idea of this salvation turn one book to the right one book to the right in first corinthians chapter 15 
1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we just see that this concept is right here in the Bible. Here he says there in 15.1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Right? Those are, those are all the, the past tense things there. Standing is current, like you already right now, Christian, are standing in the gospel. And then he says in verse 2, And by which you are being saved. So there's this idea of, yes, we have been saved, but there's also an idea that we, we are being saved. And then, of course, we will be saved, as we see in, in Romans in our passage this morning. This idea has to do with not justification again. It has to do with God fulfilling all of his purposes towards his people. Right now he is preserving you, Christian, even in the midst of the things that you struggle with and the temptations and the trials that you go through. God himself is preserving you, working things out in your life in such a way where you can continually cast yourselves at his feet. This has to do with God's big plan of salvation. You are being saved in that sense, he's working things in you, as we heard from Philippians chapter 1. He will complete it. He's completing it right now. And then there will come a day when we will be saved, when Christ will return, as it teaches in the Bible, at any moment. We don't know when exactly that's going to happen, but it will happen. And then he will finally, once and for all, gather his people to himself. Friends, this should give us great hope and security, knowing that nothing will separate us from the love of God, as Romans chapter 8 says. You guys get the idea of uh, what it means to wait with hope for the return of someone. Right? You, you guys understand this, to wait with hope in the return of someone. Right? When that someone comes, then comes liberation. That someone could be, not ultimate hope here, but you know, think about the return of LeBron, LeBron James from injury to lead the Lakers onward to victory, one would hope. It could be the return of a family member or a roommate to free you from the fear of being alone. Here, in this case, in Romans chapter 13, thinking about the ultimate things, it's the return of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And with him comes this final salvation where, where he delivers us once and for all from all the junk that we as Christians experience, our own sin, the sin of others, our struggles, and our groanings as we think about Romans chapter 8. At this point in time, that future time, God brings his plans to fruition in Jesus Christ. This is our great hope, which Romans 5, 4 speaks about. It says there that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. All of God's glory brought to bear at the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the way, I've, the way someone taught me to think about uh, this is, you know, imagine the world is covered in like this dark shroud and there just is no light because of sin, right? We've all rebelled against our creator. God created us to be in a relationship with him, but we rejected him and sinned against him. We chose to live in our own way. And because of our sin, you know, God judged us. So the world is kind of enclosed in this dark darkness and fabric. But in the gospel, God in his loving grace and mercy determined to send his light, that is the light of Jesus Christ, into the world. And you can imagine, right, if there's just all darkness and then all of a sudden there's just a little tiny tear with a bright beam of light just shining straight down to the earth. We hope, we know hope now because light has already come. But we know too that one day God will just tear apart all of that darkness when darkness will be finished and the light of Jesus Christ will be known to the ends of the earth. So we have hope now. 
But we also have hope for the then. We know hope because in the dawning of Christ, we have this dawning of the new age where Christ's rule and reign breaks into this present age, this sinful age, this age of death. But because Christ has come, in fact, there is light. Paul speaks about this age when he says, look there, Paul says, the hour has come. He says that the hour has come back there in Romans chapter 13. If you look there in verse 11. Besides this, you know that the time that the hour has come for you to wake up. He's thinking about the age, the glorious age kind of breaking into this present evil age. I don't think he's saying that some, that uh, Christians are sort of fundamentally of the world, right? And then when we do good things, then all of a sudden we are, not of the world. And then when we sin, we are back of the world. That's not what he means. So when you hear that the hour has come, don't think like now present this very moment on January 20th at 11.15, the hour has come. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this huge age that is breaking into this present evil age. Because of what Christ has done in the past and because of what he's going to do in the future, we can now live with faith and courage, Christian. Knowing that he's going to bring all of these things, all of this glory to light here on this earth. Again, another uh, very practical example. I remember this one time, uh, being a young child, I don't really remember how old I was, but um, maybe actually uh, even into my early teens. I remember being at home alone. And I swear I heard the garage door open. I swear I heard the doors downstairs open and close and someone like going, walking around downstairs. And I was upstairs in my room and I was freaked out. And I went downstairs to check and there was nobody there, nothing there. So I go back upstairs and still I hear stuff going on and still I was freaked out. But I had a hope. I had a hope that my parents would come back home. And the hope didn't also didn't just have to do with them coming home. It had to do with everything that came with them coming home. Security, safety, protection. You see, this is the exact same thing that's supposed to happen in relation to the Christian thinking about the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the return of Jesus Christ, he pushes away fear once and for all. Insecurity once and for all. Discouragement once and for all. I imagine that the Christians that Paul wrote to felt a bit uncertain, fearful, insecure in regards to their future. Right? Just remember, they experienced difficulty. The emperor had already cast, that, cast out Jews, which included uh, the Jewish Christians. They ca- basically, all the Jews were exiled. So that includes the Jewish Christians. Imagine being a Jewish Christian, being exiled from your own city having to go and live and wander around somewhere else, and who knows what's going to happen to your property, right? And then the persecution would just get worse and worse and worse. You can see how the return of Jesus Christ was to anchor their faith, lift their spirits, enliven their courage to be faithful soldiers of Jesus Christ in the now. And so it is to be the same with us and every other Christian in the globe right now. Remember last week we talked about that these Christians... We're coming to know more and more about the difficulties of what it looked like to be a Christian. I mean, they already had Jesus being crucified in their minds. They already had martyrs in their minds. 
and again, persecution from the state just would get worse. And then as we saw last week here, Paul tells them, submit to the governing authorities so long as they don't call you to disobey God. Can you believe that? They were to submit to governing authorities even if the rulers were unjust, even if the laws of the country were unjust, even if the punishments were unjust, so long as they were not called on to disobey God. What was to give them courage in great measure? It's remembering that they were of a different kingdom, ruled not by the emperor finally, but by a sovereign king, the only sovereign king who has given them his good and his perfect law, a law of love, and that one day he would make his rule and his law known throughout the universe. So that's the first point there. We looked at the sure return of Jesus, and that's found there in verse 11, this idea of salvation drawing nearer to us than when we first believed. Salvation is drawing nearer to us. The return of Jesus Christ is sure. Let's turn now to point number two. It motivates us to something as we wait for him. What does it motivate us to? It motivates us to walk like him, particularly in two ways. The first is love. The second is holiness. So write down there, if you're taking notes, love. We are to be motivated to love while we wait for him. This is found in verse 8 there. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, not, does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. I think this call that Paul is giving us, if you're a Christian right here, this call is for you. I think this call is so daring, actually. This call is courageous and incredibly countercultural. Here he's just patterning himself after Jesus Christ and this command here. I mean, think about Jesus Christ. He was the one who was able to lay down his very own self in the midst of state persecution because he knew that his kingdom was not of this world. And therefore, he's able to commit himself to doing the Father's will even in the face of death. It's like he says, let the world do what they do. Let us giving ourselves, let us give ourselves to loving our king and loving just like him for the salvation of sinners, even those who kill me. We can think of Jesus Christ. This is what pleases Christ the Lord. Here we are called to love like him, even though, as we looked at last week, Psalm chapter 2, we know that the nations rage against Christ and even his Christians at times. We saw the call to love there. Look again in verse 8. And here Paul's just picking up what he spoke of in verse 7. This concept of owing someone what is owed to them. Respect, honor, and then he talks about love. Owe no one anything except love. Now, if you guys have loans, you are not in trouble. I don't think he says when he says, owe no one anything but love, he is not saying that we should never take up loans. We know in the Old Testament there, loans were actually an understandable thing, but what is sinful is to charge some exorbitant interest on a loan to your neighbor, your brother and sister, the family of God, right? That's what was sinful, not the loan itself. So he's not talking about loans and stuff like that here. That would be really strange for us to conclude that. You know, he's talking about these huge things of honoring God, you know, talking about the return of Jesus Christ. He says, don't take out any loans. And then he goes back to the return of Jesus. Like, that just doesn't make any sense um, in light of the argument here. 
So when he says, owe no one anything, here this is a rhetorical phrase to emphasize this most important, this primary thing that is pleasing to Jesus Christ, loving one another. Love is the obligation that you, Christian, are to freely and joyfully take upon yourself just as Christ did. This joy-filled obligation that seeks the safety and security of other people in the gospel. So Christians, in no matter the country, under no matter the earthly state, they are to give themselves to this law of love, the law of God. Now, when I say the law of love, I mean God's love that undergirds all of his law, which is especially evident in God's moral law, the moral law. He speaks about some of these things here. Um, Look at the commandments in verse 9, right? Don't commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And then any other commandment there. He's talking about the moral law, I think. And again, he's simply following Jesus here. Jesus himself said that the first and greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second greatest command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is interesting. If you are a new Christian... Right, maybe you have tried to read your Bible. Right, that's a good thing. And maybe you just say, okay, I'm just going to start from the beginning. You read through Genesis, lots of narrative, lots of good stuff. You know, we see God's faithfulness there as he creates and brings his promises to people. And then you get to Exodus, still a lot of cool stuff. But then you get into some law there. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, like, what am I supposed to learn about God here? Right, so just, you know, you might read things like Exodus 12, uh, sorry, 21, 33. If someone digs a pit in the ground and someone oxes, someone else's ox falls into it, and then already you're sleeping. Because, you know, because how many of us own oxes, right? Or you get, you get to like Deuteronomy, which is the, giving of, the second giving of the law, right? And then you get to like 22 verse 8. It talks about when you have a house uh, and you're, when you have the house on your roof, you're supposed to build a fence around your roof. And then again, okay, you're already asleep because you're thinking about like... Uh, when am I ever going to own a house, etc.? And why should I think about building fences? But in all of this, all of these things, even the seemingly irrelevant things of the law, you've got to stop and think about the big picture. Like, why would God tell Israel to care about when other people's oxes fall into your hole that you yourself dug? Or if somebody accidentally falls off your roof? All of these things actually go towards the right ordering of God's people and society so that they would be safe, right? He talks about, you know, you should care about your neighbor's belongings just as you care about your own. That's why you don't want your neighbor's ox to fall into the pit. And then he talks about going and making restitution. You ought to care about your neighbor's lives just as you do your own children, right? That's why you build a house, I mean, you build a fence on top of your house so that your neighbors don't fall to their deaths. Even God here in these seemingly irrelevant commands He's going after the right ordering of society. God desires that we care for our neighbors. And you see the aim. Even in God's Old Testament case law, right, those specific cases, his aim is for Israel to care about the flourishing of life lived underneath God. Now, while the Old Testament ceremonial laws are no longer in effect, like keeping the Sabbath, for example, on a Saturday or the ceremonial laws, like what priests are supposed to do in Israel, going through the ceremonial customs. While those things 
are not applicable today. God's moral law, which undergirds them all, which is pictured here in verses 9 and other commandments, those still are. Today, God's New Testament people are to give themselves to laboring to see the church built up in love. It's a fulfillment of the law. That's why he speaks the way he does there. It's a fulfillment of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We are to labor to see in Christ God's spiritual kingdom in the church established in Christ's love. Church, you see that the church then becomes a refuge. The church then becomes a refuge. Imagine the persecuted church under the hostile state. Well, our hopes aren't in the state. That's what, that's what he's saying there. But even in the persecution, the Christian's hope is never lost because we await our king. Not the right earthly emperor that is a man, but the king who is the God-man. Because of what God will do through Christ at his return, our spirits, therefore, never need to finally be destroyed by discouragement and a loss of hope because our discouragement is not tied to a state, nor is our courage at the end of the day. Now, if you're already checked out because we're talking about the state, you can include anything. You can think about, like, if we hope in our family, if we hope in our own health, if we hope in our education, all these things will just sort of be wiped away at the return of Jesus Christ and all of the glory that he brings us. And even if all of those things fail, which some of you guys now, you know that these, some of these things are failing. Well, friends, our hope is never tied to those things. Our hope will ultimately never die. Why is that? Because our Christ is alive and he will return. So we are to give ourselves to the upbuilding of the church in loving one another. And we also have the opportunity in it to let the world know who our king is and see the beauties of his kingdom. Christian, you realize similar to last week that no matter how discouraged we, we may be by looking out there, all the problems that exist out there, whether you're discouraged because of race issues, immigration issues, the abortion conversation, right? Our hopes ought never be completely dashed. I mean, if you just stop and think about it, you know, when we're looking out there, you realize that this world that we're looking at is the very thing that God came to save us out of. He himself desires that everything evil in this world be purged from it. The world is what we are being saved out of, which of course includes our very own sin. So we ought therefore never bank our final hopes, your personal future hopes. Just think about all the things that you desire to happen in the next 1, 2, 10, 20 years. Your, the hopes maybe even for your descendants, the name of your family into the future. You can think about like the hopes for my people. Think race, ethnicity. Or just think about the hopes for our nation however you think about that. Our hopes not ever be placed in man, leaders, and nation. And the peace, the supposed peace that might come from that, the peace that God promises comes from heaven at his appointed time in the rule of Jesus Christ. And here's some more marvelous hope here. God has already established peace for his church. And then he wants us as his people to enter further into the reconciliation of God through the gospel. You see that shift there? I mean, if you know what it's like to be discouraged by stuff going on outside, 
which I, which I think might be most of us or some of us. He calls us to this shift, this shift of hoping in this earthly nation, the renovation of this nation or the family or yourself or whatever to the heavenly kingdom, to finally the hope that we truly have, the hope that will come in the return of Jesus Christ. And that hope, even though it might be a little glimmer, is seen in this local church, in every local church. We are embassies of the heavenly kingdom where we live according to his glorious law under his glorious rule. And it, when we gather here together, even right now, as we gather as a church, and then as we go and hang out even outside of the, our formal gatherings, we can be reminded of all that Christ has done, all that he is doing, all that he will do for his people. And so the church becomes a refuge for those whom he has brought into his kingdom through the blood of his son. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, let me explain. The only thing that brings ultimate hope to man is union with their creator. That's the only thing. The creator, your maker. Not earthly nations, not our companies, not families, etc., etc., etc. Now, I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily inherently bad. They just don't get at, they just don't bring the, the final answer to our problem that is sin. The rejection of God. I hope you look around, you know, on the news or in your own life and you see that humans rule poorly, very poorly in general. And it's ultimately because of sin. That's why we don't love rightly. Our loves even are corrupt. Even more important than the fact that we don't love man rightly, we don't love God rightly. We have cast off God, the creator, from our minds and given ourselves to doing what we want. And the, friends, the Bible calls that sin. And God knew that the condemnation that we had earned for ourselves is obviously bad. Judgment in hell, which is why God sends Christ, the beam of light, to a darkened world, the darkened people. He sends Christ to die on the cross for our sins. He takes on flesh and dies on the cross, bearing the penalty that all of his people deserve. And now he calls us to turn towards him, repent of your sin and turn back towards him. And what does the Bible say that we come to know? We come to know this peace, an ultimate peace, a real peace, a lasting peace that is found in union with God, union with Christ. We come to know forgiveness of sins. We begin to know what it looks like having been forgiven. We come to know what it looks like to forgive one another here in the church, knowing that we have been forgiven. We come to know our forgiveness, right standing with God, adoption into his family, access to his grace. The blessings of salvation just go on and on and on. So, friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, let me encourage you to turn from your sin. Christ is the only, the answer to our greatest problem, that is the sin and judgment that we ourselves bring upon ourselves. Don't put your hope in a nation or in yourself or even your blood family. But put your hope in the God-man, that is Jesus Christ. As we apply this to a church body, as those who say that we trust ultimately in this Jesus, as we say that we give ourselves to the upbuilding of the church, well, let me ask you right here, right now, in relation to the return of Jesus Christ, how is your aim at fulfilling God's law of love among God's people? I mean, is that even your aim today? Or is church more just something that you turn up to on Sunday mornings and then you kind of just cast it out of your mind, just go about your business, going to whatever appointments you have at 1230 
thinking about what time you actually need to leave and will this preacher ever stop preaching? Is it your aim to actually go about trying to fulfill the law of love? Now, when I say fulfill, there I don't mean like checking off all of the boxes. There's no way that we're going to be able to do that. But we can fulfill it, aim to fulfill it, as in simply seeking to properly carry it out. That's just what it means, seek to properly carry it out. Seeing to it that your fellow citizens of God's kingdom, that your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ are safe and secure in the love of Jesus. I pray that Christ would find us laboring to love his people as he wants them loved, building up the church and evangelizing others outside of the church because Christ is where true hope is found. I mean, God forbid when Christ returns, Christ would find us trying to change the world with our misplaced hopes while neglecting the church. That's like banking on something that is inevitably going to fail while God just stands there and says, what are, you, what are you doing? Like, here's the kingdom of God and the king, and you have complete access to it. You know that I'm going to bring it to fulfillment, and yet you claw after so many different things here on the earth. Of course, aiming to make a change in the world is not bad. If you want to hear a little comment on that, you can uh, listen to last week's sermon online. It is not bad in and of itself. And Christian, I hope you're trying to aim for change. But it's certainly bad when we do not prioritize the church. Christians, since salvation is nearer to you than when you first believed, since Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, will return, what will he find you laboring for? You know, a useful tool to focus our efforts on loving one another is uh, our church covenant. So if you have your bulletin in there, that's why it's included in there. We have our church covenant right here. This is one of the major documents that we go over in our membership class, one of the major documents that help ground us as a congregation. You know, the, in our membership class, which we're going to have relatively soon, if you're not a member, let me encourage you to think about joining. It's one way you labor and love towards other people that you can see with your eyes uh, and help immediately. Um, we have our membership class. The first session we have is state, the statement of faith, right, what we believe. The second section is this, the church covenant. How should we live in light of what we believe, in light of what Christ has commanded us to do. And this here is just a, a summary of Christ's commands. That kind of outlines in big picture what it looks like to give ourselves to the law of love. Every single month before we take the Lord's Supper. And then even at our members' meetings, we all, the members of the church, stand up and we reaffirm that we are committed to the law of love in this church. To seeing one another that Christ has died for safe and secure in the love of God. In effort to foster living out this law of love here in this church, let me just encourage you to pray through this church covenant for yourself. If you're a member, certainly, especially, if you're, if you're visiting, you too. You can pray that you would come to have the desires more that's reflected of here. Christ desires for us the excellent things, as we heard in Philippians chapter 1. You can pray these things that they would be your concern. Right? If these are some of our Lord's concerns for his citizens, why would we not want to think more and more about it? Some of you guys have resolutions that you say to yourself every single day. Well, this is here what God wants us to do every single day, to have the, the things of God right in front of us and have our hearts more conformed to these particular things as we're conformed more to the image of God. Not only can you pray these things for yourself, but you can pray these things for other people. 
right, your fellow church members, that they too would have the same law of love upon their hearts and that they would seek to build up the church. So we recommend praying through the church directory a page a day. So that's what you can do here. If you don't know what to pray for your friends, your member, fellow church members, you can take out this church directory, or sorry, this church covenant, and pray these things, even one line a day, for that page a day. It's a great way to serve our brothers and sisters as prayer is God's mode to change us through the power of his spirit. So in effort to live lives as God's people here on this earth as an outpost of his kingdom... Let's begin to pray these things for ourselves and for others here in this church. And you just think about when we put our backs into loving the church, it just goes to show that our salvation and hope and security is truly found in the one who is the head of this church, that is Christ Jesus. This is what Christ is all about, loving God and loving one another. May Christ find us living like him and loving like him. That's, point, that's the next sub-point. Right? So the sure return of Jesus is to motivate us to walk like him while we wait for him. Walk like him in love. We already looked at love, and now we look at holiness. Now we look at holiness. This is found in verses 13 and 14. But I'll go ahead and read 11 to 14 again just to, get, to show you the flow of his argument here in the letter. He says this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here he gets at holiness. In light of the return of Jesus Christ. You see the main thrust of the passage there in verse 14. Put on Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's like the main push right there. And you see the logic, right? The age of salvation has dawned in Jesus, right? The light of the world has come. All those in Christ are awoken from sleep. The night is far gone, far along. It's already being pushed out, passing away, and the day is drawing near. This is the day of the Lord is referred to in the Old Testament, when Christ returns to judge his enemies and then finally gather his people. Given that the day of the Lord is near, we are told just simply, like, live appropriately. Live according to the light. This is just an expansion, once again, of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Live according to your life, transformed, offering up our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And the way we do this, he says there clearly, is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he's saying just simply live our lives in Christ. When he talks about putting on Jesus Christ, it's just living out our lives in Jesus Christ. Formerly, we were in Adam. Christians were in Adam, right? We were ruled by the power of sin, the tyranny of sin. That's what Romans teaches us. But now, if you've repented and believed, you are in Christ. But what's interesting, even though he tells us to put on Christ, right? Tells us what we are to do. Paul elsewhere wrote, that we have already put on Christ. So is it something that we do once, or is it something that we do many times, or over again? Well, I think the Bible holds out both things. In Galatians chapter 3, 27, he says there that Christians have already put on Christ. But here, clearly, he tells us to do it again. So there's this aspect of already, right? We are already saved. We have already put on Christ. But we are not fully conformed to his image. And so we are to continually put him on or appropriate all of his blessings 
he teaches us elsewhere that with this language of putting on, put on the things of Christ, that is the armor, uh, the whole armor of God, that language of armor or weapons is used here in the book of Romans. He tells us also to put on the breastplate of faith and love in the book of Ephesians. All right, so in so doing, as we do this, we actively renounce sin and darkness. Thus it says there, cast off the works of darkness. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light there in verse 12. What does he specifically call us to cast off? So Christian, what are you commanded to cast off? Three pairs here. First pair has to do with drunken revelry. And I think these things are supposed to be connected, right? When you're drunk, you do you commit acts of sexual sin with greater frequency. Uh, first pair there, not in orgies and drunkenness. The second pair has to do with sexual sin specifically. Sexual immorality and sensuality. Right, those are literally the things that take place in the dark, right? But then he moves on to the third pair. It has to do with social discord, bitterness, quarreling, jealousy. And he's probably anticipating what he's going to write in chapter 14. He says here, give no space for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. It's a different way of describing this uh, killing of sin, this fighting against sin. Right before, he told us to kill sin. Here he says, make no provision for it. Don't give it any leeway. If you're visiting with us, right, you know yourself not to be a Christian, you're looking at these verses, and you're thinking, man, uh, Christian's reputation is right. Christians are a bunch of prudes. A bunch of killjoys, these Christian people. Let me be clear. Christians are not to be killjoys. I recognize that some Christians might be killjoys, but, you know, just keep in mind, non-Christian, we wrestle with our own issues too. There's no reason in the Bible that says that Christians should be killjoys. Just think about sex, for example. God is the one who made our bodies. He's the one who designed them in order to experience pleasure all by God's good design. Thank you, God. Right? We can enjoy that, but here's the deal. We're supposed to enjoy it in God's appropriate place, in the right boundary within marriage between man and a woman. That's where we enjoy pleasure. So we're not to be a killjoys. We're supposed to enjoy it. And if you, uh, you know, for the guys and gals who maybe meet up for accountability, the married guys, you know that we're oftentimes encouraging. You know, are you giving your bodies to seeing that your wife is fulfilled and the wife to the same to the husband? That's what Scripture commands. Praise the Lord. So we're not supposed to be killjoys. And then when it talks about drunkenness, there's nothing in the Bible that says that uh, drinking is a sin in and of itself. It does, though, clearly say that drunkenness is a sin. Let's be clear, right? Nothing that says anything specifically about whether having a sip or whatever it is, you know, is, is sinful in and of itself. Drunkenness is a sin. Why is it? Because when you are drunk, you are so clearly not able to think well. But you know that the Christians are supposed to think and act in a way that pleases God. And obviously when you're so numbing yourself and you're just sort of given to whatever you want to give yourself to, you can't do that. How are you supposed to purpose yourself to love and, and finding out all the beautiful things and determining all the things that are excellent and glorious and perfect and giving yourself to those things? You just simply can't do that. Which is why God says, don't be drunk, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. So in these commands, Christians are to aim to love God's gifts like sex as he himself has given them within the boundaries that he himself draws. 
Here reminded, we are reminded that Christ wants us to walk in purity until he returns. Be holy just as God is holy so that when our holy God returns, he'll find us being about his business, pleasing him, seeking to display to other people the glories of his truth and what it looks like to trust in him, even when it means denying self at times. So Christian, when Christ returns to establish his full reign and rule throughout the universe, to fulfill all of his promises and gather his holy people to himself, what will he find you doing? <coughs> Committing acts of sexual immorality? Drunkenness? Bickering over who knows what? Or will he find you faithfully and boldly walking in the light of his glory? More specifically, what are you doing to make no provision for the flesh? We know what it, what it looks like to make provisions for a whole lot of things, right? A whole lot of things. Let's take the good, for example. Think about your hobbies. Think about all the things you need, you need to do, right? If you're a foodie, if you're a foodie, it, right? We, we make provisions to try out new restaurants. Maybe we come up with this awesome list. We give our time to researching and saving up money and making plans so that we can make provisions to feed and tickle our taste buds. Think about hobbies, exercising, skateboarding, rock climbing, reading, whatever it is, right? In our zeal to pursue these great and glorious things of the earth, we clear out time again, free up resources, apply ourselves, watch videos, you know, etc. We look at catalogs, we practice moves in order to ensure that we do what we want to do and we do it well. There's fierce determination. Friends, that same determination and zeal, even greater zeal, is to be applied to making no provision for the flesh and gratifying its sinful desires, right? As John Owen said, we are to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So how are you, Christian, making no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires? I love the way it's stated here. It's like no holds bar uh, war against sinful desires, leaving no sin unturned. This is thoroughgoing sin killing. And friends, there is no laziness in killing sin. So just stop for a moment and think, what will God find me doing when he returns? In effort to apply ourselves to make no provision for the flesh, here are a few practical steps of God-glorifying, spirit-filled action. First thing we can do, right? We're thinking about uh, to make no provision of the flesh. Number one, assess your sin and heart towards that sin. Number one. Assess your sin and your heart towards that sin. Let's just think about sexual immorality because that's what he's clearly thinking about. You know, you can think, right? And I assume that all of us struggle with this. Lust, for example. You can think, why is that sin so attractive to me? Why is that sin so attractive to you? Right? The sin always offers us something. What's the something that you want? Why do you want it? You know, there's, there's a million different reasons why one could commit acts of sexual immorality. Uh, sheer carnality, you just love pleasure. That's what you're going to give yourself to. Maybe you desire intimacy, friendship. So you give yourself to it. Maybe it's, maybe it's stress relief. Maybe you, you even, because of, let's say, fear of man, of wanting to please other people, you just don't know how to turn down other people who come on to you, and so you just give yourself... Because you just don't want to feel like you're the bad guy, right? Fear of man, wanting the praise of man. Maybe you just want control, and so you give yourself to that. Maybe you even use sexual immorality because you just want to rebel. You, you, don't, you hate this stuff over here, the law, God, 
parents over you, whatever it is, husband, wife, and so you rebel against them by giving yourself over to others. You know, thinking about these things, assessing your sin and your heart towards that sin, man, it can really help you understand yourself more. It'll help you know where exactly you struggle to trust God. It helps us examine how we think about, for example, pleasure here and now. And then also we, we think about the excellent things, how Christ wants me to think about pleasure here and now. It helps me think about intimacy here and now, like the way I think about it. And then it helps me, as I think about this from the biblical perspective, how God wants me to think about intimacy now or anxiety now or laziness now or control more or control now. And in it all, you see that he's calling us to trust him. So when you think of the arrival of Jesus Christ and what he's going to find us doing, is he going to find us giving ourselves, clawing after something we so desire, you know, life, intimacy, relationship, carnality, and pleasure? Or are we going to hand all of those issues to him so that when he comes, he finds us entrusting ourselves to him in all of these different areas? God forbid, again, that he would find us tickling ourselves somewhere on the earth, grasping after all of these things or relationships when we have Christ. When he says that everything that you so desire... I give to you. And in fact, Jesus Christ right now is your satisfaction, can be your satisfaction. Therefore, with God, we shall not want. In this conversation about killing sin, let's never forget that not doing bad or that killing sin or bad things is not our greatest aim. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? In this conversation about killing sin, let's not forget that not doing bad, killing sin alone, let's not forget that those things are not our greatest aims. You realize that there are a lot of people there who don't have Christ as Lord, who aim for the same thing. There are atheists, atheists that are moralists. There are Buddhists who are moralists. There are Muslims who are moralists. Our ultimate aim is loving God. Loving the holy things, all the things that he determines are holy. Loving him who defines holiness. And out of those loves, when we learn to love like him, we learn to live like him. And therefore, we assault all that assaults him. Sinful things, Satan and death. Killing sin ought always be undergirded by a love of the holy, a love for God who defines holy. Okay, so that is assessing and evaluating, right? That's assessing, evaluating. That's, that's transformation of the mind such that we think more as Christ thinks, setting our mind on the spirit, as Romans chapter 8 says, 7 and 8. As we assess, we can secondly ask. We can secondly ask, which is just pray, but I need an A. So assess, and then we can ask, right? All of this starts with prayer. If you want your lives to change, you start with prayer, as that's just calling on God's sovereignty to change us. God, please change us. It's exactly what happens in first, uh, Philippians chapter 1. God, change this church. God, change my hearts. Change our hearts. We pray in the Spirit. 
asking God to help us set our minds on the Spirit. This is just asking for heavenly help to, to do what He wants us to do. Third, as we assess and then as we ask, we are to take action. Take action against sin, right? Make no provision. As a pastor, I'm always encouraged, super encouraged by seeing, in seeing church members who are ready to just go the distance when it comes to killing sin. They're willing to cut off anything in their lives and take practical measures. An example is, first, seeking help from other people. It is so encouraging when someone turns up to you know, a meeting, for example, with me or with others that I might hear about. Um, when you tell me that you turn up and you're confessing your sin, it's so encouraging to just say, hey, I met up with this person, and this is all the stuff that I was confessing. Blah, verbal vomit. There you go. All of my sins. Can you help me? Because that's just what it looks like to live in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ came to save sinners, and you're like, hey, friend, church member, I'm a sinner. Here's what I struggle with. Can you help me? That shows humility. It shows that you understand what it looks like, what it means to be saved by Jesus Christ. Even though you're a sinner, you are just, and we need help, right? That's what God says. It's a good thing to let other people into your lives so that other church members can fulfill the covenant, right? Right? They, they want to love the holy things. They want to go about living like Jesus. And so when you <clears throat> confess your sins and ask for help, that helps other people fulfill their covenant towards you. Not only do you show evidence of humility, but it actually goes to help other church members care for you, love you. Now, let me talk to you if you are seeking help within the church. Here are some guidelines. Here are just a few guidelines here. Find someone you trust. Find someone you trust. It is good, when you're meeting up with others and confessing your sin, it's good to know that the person you're asking help from has your best interest in mind. And if you wonder, if you're wondering, does this person have my best interest in mind, I would still encourage you to just go ahead and trust that they do. Just give them the benefit of the doubt. Trust that they do and that God will use it. But in general, find someone you trust, find someone that you know loves you. Now, in this seeking to meet up with other people, some people think like, okay, like the only way I can do this is on Mondays at 12 to 1, and, and the way I like to do it, it must be formal. So what I need is formal accountability. And all other types of accountability and help is not help. That's just garbage. So don't, don't believe that. You want to be talking to your regular Christian friends about regular Christian problems. That's just life. And that's a really good thing. Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes regular accountability that happens at specific appointment, talking about specific things regularly, can be really helpful. Sometimes that is needed. I've needed that in my own life, and I'm sure you guys have needed that in your life. That's okay. But how do you know? Depends on how serious the issue is, how serious the sin is. If you feel like you might, or if you wonder if you might need, uh, benefit from more specific time, accountability, specific, dealing with specific uh, regular issues on a regular basis, then talk to one of the pastors, talk to one of your friends, and just ask. And then uh, hopefully we can give you some good advice. Another area that's super encouraging to see people going the distance in is just taking practical measures that they not sin. Right? It's just actively fighting sin. Right? If their sexual sin involves a computer, then they are willing to change the times and places at which they use the computer, like really basic. So if you struggle with sin right now, let's just say sexual sin in regards to the computer, and you aren't willing to change the places and times, you've got to ask yourself, why? 
Clearly you see something so glorious and beautiful that Satan's holding out to you that you're not willing to cast that aside and cast your eyes on the glory of Jesus Christ. And friends, that's something. You've got to explore that. It is upon you to explore that. What is it that Satan wants, is offering you right now that you aren't able to see fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Because I guarantee you, it can be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If their sins, in terms of going the distance, if your sins, let's say, involve uh, going to cafes where you drink uh, an extraordinary amount of alcohol, right? It's awesome to see people just turn and say, look, I got this problem. Will you help me? And then they go on and commit themselves to just not going to the bar, even if it means that their friends make fun of them, even if it means that their friends abandon them. Super encouraging to see that. So, friends, for you and your struggle, let me encourage you to meet up with someone so that you can think of practical ways to make no provision for your flesh. You want to find friends here in this church who can give you counsel, especially when you grumble against just good and wise and sound advice. You want a friend who will rebuke you. You need friends to rebuke you for these things. And, friend, you need to be that friend who will rebuke others for the same a couple of useful books here in terms of uh, understanding how to fight sin. The first I'm going to tell you is The Enemy Within. It's called The Enemy Within by a man named Chris, L- Chris Lungard. It just looks at it. It's super readable. So even a junior hire, for example, could read this book and gain from it. It's probably like 100 pages, big print, small book. Um, it just talks about what it looks like to battle with indwelling sin as a Christian. So what is this sin nature? And how do, what do we do with that? How do we battle sin? The second thing is How People Change by Paul Tripp. We've gone through this course, actually, a number of times here in this church. But it's a useful model of what it looks like to assess your sin and your heart towards it, and then what it looks like to trust in the promises of God, what it looks like to bear fruit in sanctification and be holy. So that's the enemy within, and then secondly, how people change. Now, if you're struggling with sexual sin, for example, and drunkenness or addictive um, types of sin patterns and uh, things, then definitely talk to me. We've got a longer list. Let's say, for example, when it comes to sexual sin, if you're battling with like addiction to lust via the, the Internet, oftentimes I don't recommend dealing with something on pornography primarily. I, I recommend actually trying to understand God's intention for sex and sexuality. When you come to see something that's beautiful, the way that God designed it and intended us to experience within his proper boundaries, then all of a sudden we are informed by knowledge, big picture. So it's usually like, you know, not only do we address God, God's design for sex and sexuality, right? Or we do that uh, kind of big picture. Also, indeed, the, a book on, let's say, pornography and battling lust can be really helpful as well. Uh, so we can talk more about that. So to conclude, as we wait for the return of Christ... And for us to meet him, let's pray that when he returns, he would find us plotting the overthrow of indwelling sin that still remains. Let's pray that he, he finds us doing that so that we might represent the glories and beauties of Christ and his kingdom to the watching world and to one another. So as we assess, as we ask God for help, and as we take action, this is the goal to please our Lord and Savior Because he will return to gather his people and assume the throne once and for all. And when he does, may he find us as his citizens laboring for him, the king, and his kingdom.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would help us, in light of the passage that we just studied, live our lives underneath your view. God, we pray that even right now, as we wait, we know, Lord, that you give us your presence. We know, Lord, that you are watching us in all that we do. We pray, Lord, that we would so desire to glorify you and honor you and bring you glory, to trust in you and all of the goodness all of your goodness and all of your good things and the blessings that come in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that we would never place our ultimate hopes on the things of earth. Lord, we recognize that this is a battle. We recognize, Lord, that we desire pleasure. Sometimes we get so confused about or in the midst of sin and as we see people in the world, and even some of our friends, some of our family, seemingly enjoying themselves, Lord, we know that our hearts can be bitter. We know, Lord, that as we look at others with their families, even, that we could desire intimacy as well. And our hearts might wander towards sexual immorality, thinking that that would please us. But, Lord, we pray that you would rebuke us. We pray, Lord, that the momentary carnal pleasure found in sexual sin would be such a stark reminder of your glories that are found in heaven in Jesus Christ, even right now. Lord, we pray that we would turn to the things that are lasting, the love that is found in the gospel, the peace that we have with reconciliation with you, the access to your ongoing grace and your support and your love and security, all of these things. Lord, we ask that you would remind us that you are our good shepherd. And even in the midst of some of these difficulties, whether we are facing persecution or internal temptations, battling these carnal desires, uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us cast our eyes on you. Be our anchor, we pray, here in this life. And may we give our lives to you, knowing what is holy, pleasing, and perfect. In your name we pray.